Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on today's show, I will be giving an introduction to spectroscopy and the basic definitions we use in exoplanet science. Andrew has been at AbSycon chatting with people about astrobiology and the future for exoplanets. And he will cover the goings on in the news. So stay tuned. But first, it's important to introduce the Exocast family. My name's Hannah Wakeford, and I am a postdoc at Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, where I characterise the atmospheres of exoplanets. Uh, I'm Andrew Rushby. I'm an astrobiologist at the University of California, Irvine, where I study planetary habitability. And I'm Hugh Osborne. I'm a postdoc in Laboratoire of Astrophysique in Marseille in France, where I study transiting exoplanets. Well, seeing as uh, what we're talking about is all exoplanets and planets, Hugh, how's everything going in France? I know there's a massive heat wave in Europe right now. Yeah, I'm sweating a lot today oh, right now. Sorry. So if you periodically hear a fan going and some squirting water, then that's uh, that, that's me trying to cool off um, because it's about 35 degrees and there's no, not much air conditioning down here either. As people, there, there's a conference going on in uh, just up the road in Lyon, and they found out that it's going to be 40, de- well, it was 40 degrees yesterday, but the conference has no air conditioning at all. So, oh my uh, goodness, that's well outside of my habitable zone. <laughs> yes, mine too. Yeah. I remember 2015, we had a conference in France and it was in the middle of a heat wave again. In fact, actually, it was exactly four years ago. I got the notifications right. on Facebook, you know, they show you those stupid pictures in it. Anyway, I remember it being absolutely sweltering and getting on the metro in Paris was the worst. Yeah, yeah. How are you, huh? I'm good. Uh, Heatwave in, in summer is not a thing in Baltimore. It's constantly 30-something degrees and 80% humidity, so that's no different. You uh, have to get used to that. I don't think I ever will, but... Uh, as everybody around me says, well, you're British. So I'm not sure we get an option in all of that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but other than that, just uh, cracking on with lots of work, lots of travel at the moment, lots of jumping backwards and forwards across the pond, which I would prefer not to do, but uh, they've all been good trips. So, Andrew, where are you at the moment? Where is Abcycon this year? I'm sure we'll hear a little bit about it later, so you can hold off on what exactly that is. Uh, but, but how is everything? It's going well. As you might be able to tell from my croaky voice, it's been a long meeting so far. It's currently um, it's being held in Seattle this year, which is a um, beautiful part of the world in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and 900 folks coming together to talk about science and aliens, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. But this is my second meeting uh, of the last month, a lot of travel for me as well, and I'm looking forward to just not doing that for a little while. <laughs> All right, then, seeing as we started to introduce it, why don't you crack on and tell us a little bit about AbSycon? Yes. So, as I mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm in Seattle for AbSycon 2019, which is the Astrobiology Science Conference. Um, it's a biannual uh, meeting, which means held every two years. Um, uh, 
in which we cover all of astrobiology science. It's very broad. We've got astronomers, uh, planetary scientists, biologists, even philosophers. And you can always tell the philosophers from their very aggressive questioning style. Um, they don't seem to hold back much, which is, which is, I don't know, sometimes nice, sometimes refreshing. Um, but it's, I've, uh, I've had a fantastic time here. And the croakiness of my voice is representative of a lot of talking. Uh, I, had a, I had a poster to present, and uh, I judged several posters, and I spent a lot of time talking about posters. Um, and also, bringing 900 people from all across the world together, there's a lot of colds going around. Oh, it's, no. a, it's a petri dish of, uh, of uh, infectious diseases. <laughs> Hopefully none oh of them God. too serious. That's um, a horrible way of putting it. I mean, you are astrobiologists. So you've I've been around microbiologists all week, so that's by far the least gross thing I've heard. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to catch some of those 900 scientists and ask them about how the conference is going for them, what they learned and what they're getting out from it. This month, I was fortunate to attend NASA's Astrobiology Science Conference, which is the world's largest gathering of, uh, of astrobiologists, or at least those who self-identify as such. Um, and I was um, able to catch up with a few of my colleagues uh, throughout the meeting to really chat with them about why they enjoy this conference and perhaps why this, this is a standout meeting in our uh, scientific calendar. So let's hear what they had to say. So hi, my name is Sanjay Som. I am a research scientist at the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Uh, I sit at NASA Ames Research Center in California, and I'm an astrobiologist from a geological perspective. My name is uh, Luis Zaman. I'm a brand new faculty member at University of Michigan in the Complex Systems Department and the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department. Hi, my name is Louis Dartnell, and I'm a professor at the University of Westminster in London. Uh, so hi, I'm Daria Pidhoradetska, and I am a research assistant currently working at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Hi, I'm Harrison Smith. I'm a research scientist at the Earth Life Science Institute, uh, otherwise known as ELSI, in Tokyo. Um, I'm an astrobiologist. So I like to study the origin of life and uh, look for life on other planets. And I do that by uh, computational techniques, mostly. Hi, I'm Adam Stevens. I'm a postdoc at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. Uh, and my research is all about habitability, kind of in a general sense. So I do quite a lot of different projects to do with that, including looking at biosignatures, looking at environments and how we quantify them from a kind of as agnostic as possible um, type of method, but also looking at missions and how we go about doing them so recently been involved in a project where we've been simulating an actual human mission to Mars and trying to understand it from end to end. So what brings you to Seattle to Abcycon this year? Oh many things. Um, first of all because I am, I am an astrobiologist Abcycon is my favorite conference to go to and uh, having been in the field for a long time I have many friends and colleagues that work all over the world and it's also an opportunity to see people again, rekindle friendships, and, and brainstorm on new ideas. And uh, I, was a, I did my PhD at the University of Washington, so just across the lake from Bellevue, so it's almost coming home almost. Yeah. It's really good to be back. And are you presenting any science here, or are you here in support of something larger? Yeah, so both, actually. Um, uh, the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science is a, is a non-profit research institute that uh, was started with me and some of my colleagues when we were still students of astrobiology and so it's really important for us now that we have our own company to return to the community so we 10 years now right 10 years, 10 years. yeah um, time flies so this is the third app that we've been able to support 
We also supported the mentoring program here, which is really important to get new faces and increase the diversity of science in general. And uh, so we've been, you know, doing very excited to be doing that. We had a really, I think we had the nicest booth here. <laughs> I, I agree. You had the best swag as well. <laughs> and, uh, and in science-wise, uh, yeah, so I'm here, of course, to also share my science. Um, uh, I was... My, my science at this conference has been looking at new ways to quantify the concept of habitability in uh, environments that uh, independent of uh, sunlight and independent of oxygen. So really supported by geochemical reactions. What kind of life you can support with that? Where would you look and what you have to be careful about? I guess I always like coming to AbSciCon because it's the best conference. Let's it be really is. Uh, <laughs> you get exposed to a wide swath of the community. Um, you really get to inter intermingle with other people who are interested in the same problems as you, but approach it from different ways. Ah, so I've come over to Seattle, come to AbSciCon uh, with two of my PhD students, so Mara and Marina, have come with me and they're presenting, so I'm I'm having a little bit more of a scientific holiday. Yeah. You're in support, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I am in support of the two PhD students. Uh, who, Mara's got a poster up and Marina has just had, in fact, just now, her um, oral presentation, which went very well. So I was invited by some folks that do agnostic biosignatures, and in particular looking for computational people to give talks. Um, this is my first astrobiology conference. I've interacted with some astrobiologists in the past, but this is definitely my first kind of immersion experience. So I'm at AbSciCon because I come from a biology background. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in biology, and when I was um, an undergrad, I got really interested in the idea of astrobiology, being able to tie life science in with um, the connection to other worlds. Um, so that kind of brought me to where I am at Goddard, and I thought that AbSciCon was the perfect conference for me to come to, to meet other people that are interested in the same stuff that I am that also come from interdisciplinary backgrounds. Yeah, so I've just presented a, a paper which is currently, uh, I just sent the proofs back off yesterday, um, so that's quite exciting, yeah, hot off the press, um, which is a, a, a kind of amalgamation of all the things I just said, well, the, the Mars-focused things I just said, so looking at biosignatures and habitability uh, and really trying to drill down into the environments that Curiosity has been looking in um, since it landed, which are these uh, lacustrine um, mudstones and sandstones and so we we tried to simulate what the lake might have looked like when it was actually existing and throw some microbes in there try and grow them up and see what we can learn um, from that uh, again trying to uh, get away from this terrestrially biased mindset mm -hmm. as much as possible obviously it's impossible to do it completely but uh, trying to let the environment select things rather than do it yeah in our heads, um, which happens a lot of the time, I think, in astrobiology, exactly. like, you More kind of... bottom-up approach, right? So you yeah. Imposing the system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's really easy just to say, oh, well, we, we, in experiments like that, we chose this microbe because we think this is what it might be like, a microbe on Mars might yeah. be like, but that carries an inherent bias. Absolutely. So we tried to let the environment do that, and then we looked at what biosignatures were left behind, and it turns out which may not be a surprise that looking for life on Mars is pretty difficult. Yeah. In, in the plenary this morning, that seemed to be the, the take-home message. Yes, and a lot of the stuff that was echoed there um, ties in very nicely with our research, so hopefully it will be useful to people. And that will be coming out soon in... Scientific reports. Oh, fantastic, look out for that then. 
So you gave a great talk. Uh, was Thank it yesterday, you. I think? It's uh, it was Tuesday such morning. Such a long meeting. Yes. Um, and it was about future missions. Yes. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Of course. So um, we are gearing up for the 2020 Astrophysics Decadal Survey, which is going to um, prioritize the future of astrophysics and the kind of things that we need to introduce um, that we don't already have going on in space-based missions. Uh, so there's four very exciting concepts that we're looking at funding, um, and three of these four are going to be doing um, potentially direct imaging of exoplanets. So that's really exciting to astrobiology especially because it'll be the first time that we can really kind of take what we've been modeling for the last couple of years and apply it to see if it's really something that we'll find um, in other worlds. Sure, so I talked about one side of my lab. So I, I do a mixture of experimental evolution. So I work with bacteria and viruses, but I also work with this computational system where we study the evolution of self-replicating computer programs. And so kind of like you would study evolution using a population of microbes that grow and reproduce and evolve, we can study how programs can grow and reproduce and evolve when the programs are able to create copies of themselves. Um, so it's kind of, you can kind of think about them like computer viruses, but they're you know, very well protected in a simulated environment. Um, from a completely naive point of view, we're talking Conway's Game of Life type rules, simple simple rules that are governing a system that then produce a lot more complexity? Or So in this case, we're actually using full-fledged computer programs. Oh, wow. So okay. they're, they're a simple kind of programming language, but they have instructions that allow them to sort of read numbers from stacks, from registers, kind of very much, very, very much a real computer program that has hardware that allows them to read and write into different locations of memory. And so you can imagine that's how one program create a copy of itself into a new part of memory. Fantastic. And applications for agnostic biosignatures? Uh, that was a good challenge for me <laughs> to think about. And I guess what I, what I think I was able to contribute was more sort of framing the question of why we might expect to see complex life. What, so what are the evolutionary processes that we might expect to lead to more complexity? Uh, and I think that's yeah, it seems like an important astrobiological question. I think so. I think so. <laughs> okay, perhaps let's uh, shift perspective from the science that you're here to disseminate to perhaps the science that you've had a chance to consume while you're here. Anything interesting or, or novel or really surprising that you've learned over the past week or so? My favourite presentation from the whole of AbCycle, and there have been many that I've enjoyed and mm, found fascinating. It's been a good, good conference. It's, it's been a great conference. And it's, I think often with conferences like this, particularly interdisciplinary astrobiology conferences, often the, the, the kind of the anomalies, the ones that surprise you, that, that, that stand out Absolutely. and are the most interesting. Yeah. Uh, and for me, my standout talk was um, a, a guy called Dominic was presenting about octopuses, octopodes, octopi. He talked about an octopus and how the octopus was very intelligent um, and how they effectively, he had a beautiful phrase because the octopus doesn't uh, do all of its processing within its brain, but it has these ganglia kind of running throughout its tentacles. Mm. So his his idea was that the the octopus had taken its mind and exported it out into the environment to, to meet it halfway. And it was just a lovely turn of phrase of this completely alien intelligence. And it's not like, you know, kind of chimpanzees are intelligent in their own way, but then they've got basically the same brain as us. This is just a fundamentally different architecture of, of processing. I think what AbSycon does really well is that balance between stuff which is bang on the nose of my particular field, catching up with other people's exactly. results, and then just popping into it to a side 
side session to see what's kind of going on and then, and then being surprised by it. So this isn't your first Abcycon, right? It's not. It's at least my first. I've, I've been at least once before, so it might be my second, possibly the third. Okay. So, I mean, can you, can you tell the, the progression of the conference over the times that you've, you've been? Yeah, so I would yeah. definitely say that Abcycon has been growing from strength to strength, mm-hmm. and it really has, this year, I think, kind of matured into itself. And you see that from not just like the quality of the presentations... But the, the quality of, of the data and the science that's, that's being presented as well. So if, if you could judge the vitality of a, of a discipline or a field by the conferences that it hosts, this is a really good that's sign of the fashion well. about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think we found out this morning 960. Yeah, so that's the number I'd heard. Yeah, yeah. Shy, shy of a thousand. Not too bad at <laughs> just all. Just shy of a grand. Yeah, so I, so I, I don't know much about uh, the biochemistry and evolution like being a geologist and uh, being more fa- familiar with the physical sciences I always pop my head into into talks that, that I don't know anything about which is one of the real value of AppSciCon exactly. such a broad uh, conference and I learned about a concept of experimental evolution so you can take microbes put them inside sort of a machine and cycle the biomass and change the, the, the concentration or whatever chemical elements are in the fluids or the water that hosts those microbes and kind of see them evolve as they adapt to this new environment. And I think that's really cool because the environments we're going to find in, in, in ocean worlds, for example, are probably going to be different than what we are accustomed to on Earth. I mean, those, those moons are different tectonically, different geologically, so we, we can't expect to find Earth life on, on these other worlds. Right? They will have adapted to their environments for the same reason that we see the colors of, this, of the, the sun that we do is because our eyes have evolved over millions of years to adapt to the sun. So life adapts to its local environment. And so the fact that we can test that in the lab by submitting them to new environments and seeing how biology evolves is just awesome. And that has always been one of the, the limiting factors of astrobiology, right? And that we, all of these assumptions that we have about Earth life are, are bound up in the experimental design going forward. And I would, I would totally agree with that. I've seen a few of those sessions myself, absolutely out of my wheelhouse. But there does seem to be a, a better recognition of that now and a methodology that can try and, try and mitigate some of those, those biases. Absolutely. And, and I mean, li- life will, wherever it is, will obey the laws of chemistry and physics. Exactly. Right? We can assume so, that at least. <laughs> exactly. So we can use that baseline and it, life will require energy supplied by the environment. And so uh, put all, put, putting all these things together and understanding how life adapts on Earth to extreme environments is, is actually very helpful in, a, in assessing extraterrestrial environments for uh, biological potential. So I've gotten to attend a lot of really cool talks this week, but I think right now the most exciting thing that I have learned or found out this week um, is that Dragonfly was selected um, to launch in what 2026 Um, so we're very excited to go and visit titan Uh, we've got this awesome helicopter mission uh, where we're going to be able to explore this really cool area for prebiotic chemistry and learning all about um, how life may or may not arise in a different place i did go to the social science session and that was pretty interesting Um, that's probably more closely related to what i do actually just in the sense of like kind of more philosophical questions maybe I guess for my personal research, I got excited about, um, I've been thinking a lot about planetary protection lately, both in the context of thinking about um, accidentally contaminating other planets, but also from a more philosophical point of view of, is this even something that's possible? Can you even disentangle a biosphere from a geosphere? Um, And a lot of my thinking from this has come from other people that I work with. And so uh, one way that I'm probing this is by using these genomic and metagenomic data sets 
that are available online. Um, you can take them, you can turn them into the proteins that the genomes and metagenomes code for, and then you can look at what reactions those proteins catalyze. Um, so you can kind of figure out what organisms or ecosystems can do uh, in a given environment if they can make compounds that are useful to sustain themselves. That sounds super useful. And you don't have to go into a lab to do that. I don't have to go into a lab to do that. <laughs> Just like me, I try and, try and stay out of labs. Yeah, so use the fruits of uh, other people going into labs. So. so did you find yourself in kind of a weird session this time around that was completely out of your out of your sphere? Of yeah, but I like to do that. Yeah. Um, so I like to go to the sessions about engineering and instrumentation because they're really grounded and... Um, it helps me kind of keep a foot in the door for the planetary science community, which I'm also interested in. So I went to a session earlier today about melt probes um, going through the surface of Europa for, you know, future Europa missions. The one thing that really stood out was just just one um, one talk. Uh, it kind of was out of the blue. I hadn't really seen it on the schedule. It just happened to be in the, the session I was in um, about biogeophysics which isn't uh, a thing you typically hear, but so it's actually something that they've proposed um, and is really of interest for me as, as someone who's trying to think about uh, biosignatures in a slightly, uh, I guess, more zoomed out way. So, well, I also think about them on a micro scale, but I think about how we can do things like investigate the subsurface of Mars, even though we don't have the technology to drill there. Um, so she's talking about different ways that you can actually use geophysics to detect biology including like looking for things like magnetic minerals uh, and other kind of uh, ground penetrating radar and and things like electrical measurements which it turns out you can actually use to see some of the effects of biology even at like super long ranges and super deep in the crust um, which I'd never ever heard of before that's news to me um, yeah so I'm uh, excited to look into that so it's but it's very fresh and uh, I knew they've got a paper out on it. We like to um, put our, our guests on the spot towards the end okay. here and just ask maybe what your favourite exoplanet or planet might be. Okay, I'll give you my favourite planet. Seems um, more than fair. <laughs> yeah, my favourite planet is um, maybe boring, but my favourite planet's Earth. And I think it's the coolest planet because it has life, and life is just the most enigmatic thing that I think anyone can imagine. Um, and it's it's maybe unintuitive because we're living creatures and so we're really used to having life around and thinking about life but when you think from a, a physical and chemical process point of view it's pretty interesting how we came to be planet or solar system body andrew oh wow well, um, well, has anyone else been that that guy they, no, they haven't yet um and <laughs> me personally we've talked about it on the show i consider it a spectrum you know i, th I think it's just arbitrary all inclusive so what objects uh, et al I mean, I don't know I was being so pedantic because I'm probably going to have said Mars anyway. See, that's well, a lot of, lot of time for an extra neighbor. But I would, I really want to see what's beneath that shell of, of Europa as well. I think if, if, if you, if, if you were to force me, I'd probably actually put my money that if there is extant life alive today in the solar system, it's likely to be in that dark ocean of Europa rather than surface Mars. I feel like I've, I've almost said that exact phrase at some point <laughs> myself. So I'm in complete agreement. The best planet to study as an exoplanet is actually our own Earth billions of years ago. If you take the Earth billions of years ago, it was a very different planet, right? No grass, no animals, no trees. The moon was a lot closer. The planet was spinning, was spinning faster. 
the sun was fainter, the air composition was different, like for all intents and purpose, it was a completely different world than what we know of Earth today. However, it was very much alive, and that's the awesome part, and that history of that environment is recorded in the rocks. So as a geologist, I really, one of the things I prefer the most is whenever I go to a, a site which has which has a, a rich history geologically, is to reconstruct the environment in my mind. And so there are plenty of places on Earth that have rocks that are billions of years old. And through that, you can reconstruct the environment of how our planet was back then. So my favorite exoplanet is, in fact, our own planet billions of years ago. You know, I, I can't remember any of the names of them, but I have a favorite system. Oh, that's maybe. fantastic. So, of so there's a lot of talk at this meeting, and, and, and I heard about it before this meeting, even this TRAPPIST-1 system of many possible habitable planets all in one solar system relatively close like a few light years away and just the 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 imagery that nasa has produced of of sort of what it would look like standing on one of these planets is is pretty fascinating it's funny when i get asked that people always assume i'm going to say mars but actually i would generally say that my favorite planet is earth because it's quite nice and i like living here in terms of exoplanets i could honestly probably not tell you one, uh, <laughs> I said but my answer would be my answer would be the closest one. Uh, approximate sense, then I guess. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a bit of a pragmatist, and and while I've I do find exoplanet research interesting, I do feel like in terms of realistic exploration, I I want something tangible. Exactly. I find the whole abstract. Um, concepts that throw get thrown around with exoplanets quite difficult to fit in my brain and like i think it's great that everyone looks at it and 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 there is work being done on it but i want something that i can go and point a laser at or it hopefully some point get human hands on with a rock hammer and and do analysis I have to be impartial to TRAPPIST-1e because it's such a great target for follow-up um, and it's so similar to our planet Earth. Um, it lies in the habitable zone of its host star, but it's also got this really similar radius, mass, and density to planet Earth. Um, so I think I'm going to have to go with TRAPPIST-1e. <laughs> fantastic choice. And there we have it. Thanks a lot to Adam, Daria, Louise, Harrison, Lewis, and Sanjoy for taking time out of uh, what was a very busy and very interesting meeting to have a have a quick chat with me. I hope to catch up with them again at the next Apps Icon, which will be held at Georgia Tech in 2021, and can't wait to see what incredible astrobiological discoveries are made in the interim. Now, I've been in one too many planetary protection sessions, and I feel the urge to wash my hands again, uh, even though I know it probably won't make much of a difference. So let's throw it back to the studio. Well, thanks to those scientists for spending a little time talking with me about their research and about astrobiology. Uh, And one of the other things we talk about on the show quite a bit uh, that we haven't actually given much of a detailed introduction to is spectroscopy. It's relevant for a lot of areas in exoplanet science, and Hannah is going to guide us through an intro to spectroscopy. That's right. I thought that actually it was Hugh's idea to talk about some of the basics of the definitions that we use for spectroscopy and all of the ways that we apply it. Spectra themselves are the result of light energy or or radiation interacting with different materials or environments. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through the different uses of characterization, identification and analysis of spectra. And the, th- the funny thing with spectroscopy, it's actually possible to make use of spectra in the analysis of different things without having a good understanding of the way 
that that observed spectrum is related to the properties of the absorbing, emitting or scattering material. So in this segment, I really wanted to go into like fill in some of those spots, fill in some of that information, define a lot of the terms that we use on the show and in exoplanet science, and also try to give a little bit of context with each of those definitions about things that we've we've talked about and you can hear on different episodes. So to kick that all off, I think it's uh, this is all going to be about the way that those that light, that radiation interacts with material, and that's really based on the electromagnetic spectrum. And because I'm lazy, that's going to be the EM spectrum for the rest of this. So I want to outline what that is for for those of you that know what it is. This is hopefully going to give you a little bit of a reminder of the different regions of that spectrum. So it's electromagnetic waves of radiation, which can have a very large range of wavelengths and frequencies. And although the interaction with materials is more often due to the different frequencies of that radiation that's being absorbed or emitted, it's actually easier to differentiate the types of radiation, the types of waves by their wavelength. So the whole spectrum starts off with ionizing radiation. This is very high energy radiation of gamma rays, and those have wavelengths of about 10 to the minus 12 meters, which is actually called a picometer. And I, I tried to find an, an analog for the picometer, but it turns out that it's actually smaller than the distance between atomic bonds. So I don't know how you're gonna try to imagine that, but I'm struggling a little bit there. Very, very small. These are very, very small wavelengths. As we increase in wavelength, we get to x-rays, and you'll be familiar with them if you've ever broken a bone, been to the hospital, had an x-ray. And then we move to extreme ultraviolet rays, which stretch out into the 10 nanometer range. So that's about the same size as a double helix of your DNA or a virus. And then we enter very quickly the visible region and, and the near UV optical and near infrared range, which goes from around 100 nanometers to 10 millimeters. So we're talking about rolling fog droplets uh, to the size of a golf ball. So these wavelengths, they're getting bigger and bigger. They're getting to the part where it's the visual part of the spectrum. You can see the size of those wavelengths. And then we kind of start moving into the microwaves and the radio waves, which go from 10 millimeters to around 1,000 kilometers. So from football fields to mountains to the size of the Earth itself. So in fact, one of the things that I, when I was going through all of these basic de definitions, I thought was quite funny. The word microwave is a bit of a misnomer, uh, as it refers to a part of the spectrum where the wavelengths are actually around one millimeter to about 10 centimeters. There's no micro in there whatsoever. And this is because oh, weird. <laughs> they, they were named by radio engineers. So they're micro because they're smaller than radio waves. So we can blame that all on radio engineers deciding to name something a microwave because it was smaller than the waves they were working I, with. I think we have a lot to thank radio engineers for, given we, you know, There's microwaves so themselves, radar, <laughs> telephone communication, you know, yeah. we can't go too hard on them. We could probably laugh. No, I suppose not. And, and you know what I really love about the radio wave is that we're talking about some of the most fundamental things that started astronomy. And we're all British, as everybody knows who listens to us regularly. Radio astronomy in the UK is huge because it's constantly cloudy, but those radio waves from the universe can reach our radio telescopes. So that was a really, really important part. I remember growing up and going around the different radio telescopes uh, and seeing them and, and going to Jodrell Bank or Hearst Monchoux and, and just seeing those telescopes and trying to understand what they're showing you. So 
Radio waves are a really big part of astronomy, but they're not a huge part of exoplanet science, uh, the exoplanet work that we do. Most of the stuff that we talk about on this show is talking about the visible, the, the UV or the infrared wavelengths. This is roughly like 0.2 to 10 microns. We're not really talking beyond those ranges in exoplanet science. But there is some interesting work that's starting to go along in radio emissions of aurora around exoplanets. So aurora around Jupiter emits in the radio. You can see the radio frequencies. And if you look, some people are trying to look towards exoplanets to see that as well. So maybe in the future, we'll be talking a little bit more about radio detections of emission from exoplanet atmospheres. But this leads me onto those definitions that we've been talking about, the way that things interact with that spectrum. And this is, this is you know, the excitation and relaxation of electrons within those materials or the way in which those atoms interact with each other. So to logically start this, I want to excite some of those electrons and see what happens. And as radiation from the EM waves stream through the universe, it's likely they will come into contact with something at some infinite point in time. And what happens then is you get something called absorption. And that's when the impacting radiation causes this transition from a low energy state to a high energy state within the molecule or atom system. And this is called absorption because it's absorbing the energy of that radiation and converting it into energy which changes the state of that material. Now, there are a number of different ways that energy can be converted within a material. The most basic level change is electromagnetic energy levels, where the, electro the electron itself transitions from a low energy to a high energy. So you're exciting that electron by giving it energy and it's moving from a low state to a high state. And this is actually happens where with the absorption of UV or optical radiation. So most of the stuff that we're looking at in the optical and the UV is the electromagnetic energy level change of these electrons within the atoms. The next one is a change in the vibrational energy. And this occurs by the absorption of infrared radiation because this is changing the way that those atoms are interacting with each other. The way that they're moving relative to each other gives you the vibrational energy of that material. And then as we go to, to longer frequencies, longer wavelengths, you get nuclear energy level changes, which is re related to radio wave frequencies, and electron spin energy levels, which are measured by microwave radiation. In fact, the most famous of the nuclear and electron spin energy state measurements in astronomy is the 21 centimeter line, which, you know, is the cries of hydrogen throughout our universe. It's just screaming at 21 centimeter wavelengths. And, and this actually indicates that hydrogen is in a lower state and will absorb that energy, will measure absorption of 21 centimeters. And if the, if you are, if that hydrogen is losing energy, will measure emission of 21 centimeters. And this is telling us the different regions, the different energy absorption or dissipation of hydrogen throughout our, our universe. And that's one of the ways that they, we've been able to measure the structure of our own Milky Way galaxy whilst we're sitting inside it. So that was another thing that radio astronomers have given us, this, this spectral line radio astronomy, which started in the 1950s uh, and really, really has helped map the universe in, in ways that you can't before. So an absorption spectrum is a record of the absorption or transmittance 
of a material with respect to its wavelength or some function of that wavelength. In exoplanet characterization, you hear us talk about this a lot, it's called the transmission spectrum, as the transmittance of the atmosphere is measured and the different absorption profiles that we see caused by these electromagnetic and vibrational energies are measured from the UV to the infrared. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the transmission spectrum of an exoplanet atmosphere. But as I've hinted, once those energies are absorbed, they're in that higher state, they're more energetic. What happens when they drop down to a lower state? And that's something called emission. And we also do this in exoplanet observations when we're talking about looking at the day side of a tidally locked exoplanet. We're seeing the emission from that day side. Or we're talking about brown dwarfs and directly imaged planets. We're seeing the emission directly coming from those planets themselves. And this is when you've promoted these electrons into these higher states and then it reverts back down to the ground state by releasing that energy again. So it's released that absorbed energy. And there are three different forms of emission spectra. There's a continuous spectrum, which is the, the entire background spectrum that you would see, band spectra and line spectra. In exoplanet studies, we mainly deal with band spectra and band spectra are produced by molecules such as water or carbon dioxide and we see those mostly in the near infrared to the mid infrared and that's very very similar in terms of the energies the input energy and the output energy they they occur in a very specific wavelength range and then line spectra are actually produced by atoms themselves so it's things like the sodium doublet if we're seeing that in emission then we're going to be seeing the line spectrum this individual lines of those electrons dropping down energy levels and one example of this actually in transmission, which if you flipped it into emission would be this line spectrum, was the, the discovery of helium by Jessica Spake et al. in 2018, which looked at the specific energy transition of the helium atom as it was promoted to that higher state. So the absorption of that helium, which occurred in the near-infrared optical at, I'm going to say, 10,800 10, angstroms. So that's just a, just about one, one micron, so just over one micron. So many different units here. I know it's not very helpful at all. Um, <laughs> and you can go back to which episode 24 to hear more about that when we had Jess on, I think. Right? Yeah, you can. Uh, we've got a really good discussion there about what is required to promote that electron to that energy state. So what radiation is required to promote it to that state? And then emission actually is dealing with what energy is released when you drop back again. And these don't always have to be equal. So what does that mean? That actually comes into the last one that I really want to go through because we talk about a lot here as well, is scattering. And scattering occurs when radiation is instant on a surface, it passes through a material a portion of that radiation is scattered in all different directions and the nature of that scattering event will be dependent on the wavelength of the radiation you put in in the first place. So in nature the, the structure of the substance itself will cause different scattering events and any inhomogeneities in the material, so anything that's different in the material, so say you've got a water droplet but inside that water droplet there's a very small bit of dust the size of that dust particle will change the way that the light interacts and scatters with it. So they're 
very small changes in the substance will cause very different things in the scattering. And one thing that we mention a lot here is Rayleigh scattering. And this can be seen in the Earth's atmosphere. It's what makes the sky nicely blue. It's scattering away all of those, those red, those, uh, those longer wavelengths. And this is actually called an elastic scattering event. This is when there is no change in the wavelength of that, that scattered light. There's no change in the energies there. So the input energy is the same as the output energy. And this is, this is what we're seeing in a lot of exoplanet atmospheres. We're seeing the effects of elastic scattering, this Rayleigh scattering, and it ends up where you're, you're scattering away the, the different wavelengths of light. However, you can get inelastic scattering. Um, it's, it's less common in terms of the, in the atmospheres because you have to have some kind of energy trap, some kind of absorption of energy that isn't then released again. This is actually called the Raman effect. Um, and this is categorized by a change in the frequency or, uh, or wavelength of that radiation as it passes through the material. It's actually one of the things that's really currently being examined in medical treatments of cancers, for example. So where if you shine a light, a monochromatic light source into a, a part of the body, the cancer will interact with that light differently and it will be an inelastic Raman effect. And you can analyze the light that you're seeing from it, the change in the energy of light that you get to determine what position and composition that cancer has. So that's a, that's a really new bit of research that's going on. So spectroscopy is not limited in any way to astronomy and looking at the universe. It's really everywhere around us. And everything that we know and understand about exoplanet atmospheres is reliant on spectra that is analyzed and interpreted on the ground. We've talked previously about the exomole line lists these are all computed on the ground using all of the different quantum equations which go behind all of the things I'm describing. These energy level changes all rely on quantum effects. So there's a huge amount of really complicated <laughs> maths that goes into all of this. And we rely on all of that information from quantum chemists like the ExoMol team to people in the lab who are actually making measurements of these materials, shining different lights through these materials and seeing how they interact with that light to try and understand and analyze these so we can get the band spectra and the line spectra that we compare our observations to. So there's a huge amount more information out there that you can definitely go find out. I encourage you to go uh, follow the ExoMol team on Twitter. It's at ExoMol. So I really encourage that because that, that's really where we're getting all our fundamentals from. But there, there are three types of the spectra which arise from these processes I've described. The rotational spectra, which is due to the changes in the rotational energy, how, how the molecule is moving in 3D space. The vibrational spectra, so how they're moving relative to each other. And the electronic, due to changes in the interior energy levels of, of the electrons in that material. So. A spectra can arise from any combination of these. We can be seeing absorption spectra, we can see emission spectra, and we can see the scattering of these materials. And it's all down to how light and radiation is interacting with the material around us. And in exoplanet characterization, what we're seeing is the way that that starlight is interacting with the material before it reaches our telescopes. So put an atmosphere around a planet 
put it in front of a star relative to our point of view, we're seeing the interaction of that light with that atmosphere. And that's really what we're measuring. We can also define a spectrum in all of these different ways because of the wavelength of light by the detectors that we use. And Hugh's done a lot of segments talking about the different instrumentation that we use in exoplanets. And the different instrumentation is really important when we go from the UV and optical, where we can use things like CCDs, which is you know what you've got in your standard camera and your phone camera, for example, there's a very small CCD in there. This is, this is capturing the wavelengths of light that are visible and, and towards the UV end. But when we go to the infrared, a CCD doesn't work. That's not how it captures that information. So you need something different. And these are these are often used like ceramic detectors or thermocouple devices, which are able to track and monitor that wavelength of light. So we can also define all of these different portions of the spectrum by the different ways in which we have to measure them. So that really actually is one of the things that's limited a lot of the studies that we're doing is detection of these and actually accurate measurements is really difficult as we go out to different wavelengths. But another thing that limits all of our nice exoplanet characterization to the, the UV to the infrared is the stars themselves and the wavelengths of light in which they emit most of their energy, which is in that range as well. So we're really reliant on all of these different things throughout the universe coming together so that we can understand and analyze the spectra of exoplanet atmospheres. I kind of, I, there was a lot of stuff in there. There was a lot of different things that bring together and we've talked about in different extents across all of our shows. So I hope it kind of gave you the definitions of all of those different uh, things that we use and, and some examples of where we might be seeing them. But it's a really extensive subject, spectroscopy, and there's so many different applications that I don't even think it's possible to go into all of them and exactly how they work. Um, but there are, I, I've already said, I really think it would be great if you go, go look at the ExoMol team. They're really working to try and produce these spectra. They've got some fantastic communicators on their team as well. There's also a Hytran team who are producing the, these spectra from, uh, they're the US-based team. And then there's also just really basic lab experiments where they take a material, they shine light through it, and they measure how that material interacts with the light. And a lot of the work that I've done on the cloud absorption and scattering is based on these types of measurements. So we need to be really pushing for more lab uh, and ground-based measurements of these so that we can accurately work out what the spectra of these exoplanets are telling us. That was a great introduction, Hannah. Uh, it reminded me a lot about things that I'd forgotten. I learned a bit. And um, it's such a fundamental part of, of not just physics. I mean, we're talking fundamental physics here, but our work in exoplanet science as well. So. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, I've got this, my research came from these two fantastic books I tweeted about uh, a while ago. One of them's a dictionary spectroscopy, which was written in 64. Uh, and one is a, a student introduction to molecular spectroscopy, which immediately jumps into the Schrodinger equation. And I'm like, you're not very nice for a student book. But that was that was written in like the 70s or something. So <laughs> the thing is, I was going through all of these and I, I was making sure and I, I was just wanted to make sure I got all of these definitions right. I work with spectra every single day. But I wanted to make sure that we got these definitions right, because like I said at the beginning, you can work with spectra, but not really need to understand 
the fundamentals of what's going on. And it, it was really interesting and really nice to, to remind myself of those fundamentals, which I did know at some point. And with each new paper that I write, I have to relearn. So you redrive Schrodinger's equation from uh, first principles then? Or? Oh God. <laughs> I'll send it to you, Hugh. You can play around with it. Do okay. some of the questions they've got in there. I could never do that. I'm, I'm far more the person who uh, who doesn't quite understand the fundamental physics of, of some of the things I, I talk and do. So, That's... Draw me a picture and I'm normally good. Yeah. It's when you can't draw a picture because it's so... Um, you can't conceptualise it. That's when I start having some issues. I, I would agree, but it's interesting we're both like that and yet we're doing a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> True. Very true. <laughs> You'd think we'd have some audio learners uh, doing this thing, but apparently not. Huh? Oh, apparently that's not how it works. Depends <laughs> on us being good communicators, right? That's taking true. taking the fact that we're maybe more visual learners and translating it into uh, good science communication, which we hope that we're doing. Maybe not that sentence. I mean, that's why I had all of those. I was just like, what does this mean? What is a picometer? And I was like, okay, so you can't understand what a picometer is. That's fine. Didn't need to anyway. What, what, is, what is it in <laughs> ISS astronauts' fingers? Because that's, that's my go-to definition. So. <laughs> a little bit of a throwback there to, uh, what, two episodes ago? No, that was last episode. Uh, and was that last episode? I don't think so. Oh, man. <laughs> it's ridiculous. The months go by so quick. They do. They do. Okay, well... Months go by so quick. Hugh, what's been happening in the exoplanet news? A, a lot of things, but um, I thought I'd start away from the exoplanetary news, but in the planetary science news sphere, because there's been some interesting developments in multiple fronts you know, in, in our solar system. First to Mars, where Curiosity and the Sample Analysis at Mars instrument, SAM, has been monitoring the atmosphere of Mars since its arrival in 2012. And methane, a possible signature of organics on the surface, has been barely registering in the, in the instrument. Except a couple of weeks ago, it was leaked, I believe, from emails that uh, this SAM saw 21 parts per billion of methane in the Martian air, suggesting some interesting but fleeting chemical pathway, be it biological or otherwise. Um, but I should say that the instrument and the statistical methods used have been called into question, e.g. by Kevin Zanley, and the, the trace gas orbiter, which is specifically in orbit around Mars to, to try and search for things like methane, hasn't confirmed such high uh, CH4 levels just yet. Next to a couple of uh, recently announced solar system missions, the first announced a couple of weeks ago was an ESA mission called Comet Interceptor. And this is a fleet of three comet-chasing spacecraft which are going to hunt down one of these icy comet bodies in order to study its nucleus, the gas, dust, chemical composition, etc. And um, the possible exoplanetary link here is that uh, Comet Interceptor is actually going to head out to L2 first and then go in a sort of standby orbit for a while until an interesting long period comet passes by. Now that could be something like Hale-Bopp or you know, something from within our solar system, but it could also be something like Oumuamua, so we could, by 2028, have the ability to race after one of these extrasolar asteroids and actually study the surface and the composition of it, which would be so cool if that happens. So Hugh, are you saying that they don't currently have a target, but they're just going to hang out on L2 for a while? Yeah, they're going to hang out until Panstars or, or a ground I would love to have been at the funding panel for that. Like, oh my so god, yeah. You guys don't have a target, just going to... just. 
we'll launch you out to L2 and just sit there for a the few problem years. The problem is, all of the well-studied comets are short-period comets, so they're the ones that we've, you know, were discovered in 1910 or something. So if you want a comet that's a long-period comet that comes from far off, which haven't been studied because of that, uh, then you need to have a proposal, launch a mission, get the comet before it leaves the solar system, right? Before it leaves the inner solar system. So you can't do sure. it. So um, I think I, I, I think there are benefits, and I'm sure the committee yes. saw them clearly. Yeah. yeah, clearly that's fair. They were clearly able to argue their case very, very yes. well. Yes, um, and also announced this month was NASA's uh, New Frontiers mission selection, which was won by Dragonfly. So this is a quadcopter, which is going to parachute down onto Saturn's icy and organic-rich moon Titan in, I believe, 2030-ish, or maybe earlier. I, I, uh, uh, 2034. 2034. Wow. A long way off. Launching 2026. Yes. Um, and thanks to the Titan's thick atmosphere and low gravity... Dragonfly's little wings will enable it to perform a series of short flights with the plan to eventually cover something like 200 kilometres across the Titan surface in order to study the features on the surface and the chemical constituents and everything everything involved in that. And once again, if you want to hear a bit more about Titan, then you can go back to episode 29 where we chatted to Sarah Hurst, who's actually involved with that project. From selected missions to kind of more speculative mission ideas, there was a paper on the archive this month on the Nautilus concept by uh, Daniel Epai, at all. And this was an idea of a fleet of telescopes which would be able to search for biosignatures and also detect planets around up to a thousand nearby stars through, through imaging. So the key to this design is the so-called mode lens, which is this ultra-lightweight Fresnel lens. So if you, if you picture the lens on a lighthouse um, with those small prisms, each radiating out from the centre... Um, that's a Fresnel lens and those because they're not a large chunk of glass or a large chunk of, of metal in the case of, of mirrors they can be made extremely lightweight something like 10 times lighter than the equivalent mirror or lens size and they're also so lightweight they can essentially be stuck on the outside of a large balloon with the electronics and the CCDs in the middle and then inflated once they get to space so there's this amazing diagram or image uh, which shows how 16 of these 8.5 meter telescopes could be stacked up one on top of each other, a bit like, oh, this is going to show my age, a bit like pogs, you know, where you stack pogs. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> or uh, I don't know what the equivalent kids. is in, in, in uh, you know, millennial terms. Well, I'm a, I am a millennial. Hang on, we're millennials. Yeah. It's, it's Gen Z or Gen Zs. Okay, Gen well, I don't Zs. know what their terms are. Yeah, I don't know. No, I don't think they have pogs, the poor bastard. <laughs> Um, yeah, so you could stack 16 of these into a single SpaceX uh, fairing, one of their BFR or Starship fairings. So imagine that 16 8.5 meter mirrors in space searching for life. That could happen in 20 years' time if, if this concept gets developed. Um, so put it, putting that in context, JWST is what, six and a half, six and a half meters? meters? Yeah. So that's yeah. big. That's yeah. big. Yeah, so yeah, that's huge. Talking of directly imaging planets, um, ESO's near instrument or nearby exoplanets in the Alpha Centauri region had its first light this month. So we talked a little bit about that when Russ Belikov was on the show about five episodes back. And the plan is that this, well, this, this is being installed on ESO's VLT, so the Very Large Telescope, and it will be able to image Earth-like planets in the Alpha Centauri double star system once they kind of get the uh, engineering analysis of the system underway. And staying with the VLT, it was used this month to spot a second planet in the PDS-70 system. In fact, the day after we recorded our last episode, uh, when Tom Howarth adopted its inner cousin, PDS-70B, into our 
uh, our adopted exoplanet list. The second planet, PDS-70C, was announced. So this was a uh, was announced thanks to the accretion of hydrogen onto the planet itself, which causes both of the planets to grow brightly in this H-alpha kind of spectral line region, which is one of the spectral lines. Uh, did, Hannah, did you mention an h Balmer series? I don't think you did, right? But um, that's one of the... No, I didn't mention the H-alpha Balmer series. The, that's my bad. The first thing you learn in spectroscopy is the Balmer series, and that is the... First thing you learn, and I completely... I was. <laughs> I mean, I, I learned about the 21 centimetre line. Oh, that, that's another good one. Um, <laughs> what's, what's your favourite line, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 1.6. There's a methane line there, right? At 1.6 microns yes, for, yes, for biosignatures. Oh, yeah. uh, or 7.6 for oxygen, maybe. Good. That's a good one. Yeah, good. Nine. Oh, nine. nine. See, I'm not a spectroscopist, <laughs> right? I'm one of the people who I receive said no, spectroscopy. No, sorry, like, ozone is nine. Oh. oh. Maybe there is one at 7.6 then. Anyway. Ozone is nine. Some sort of biosignature line would sure. be great for me. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, there was also a preliminary paper out that came out of the AS AAS splinter session called Learning to Utilize Kepler's Unique Dataset for Computing Exoplanet Occurrence Rates. And um, this was published by Bryson et al. And they, what they did was they managed to correct the previous occurrence rates to account for how the Kepler candidates are actually not reliable. So um, that means that not everything in the catalogue that comes out is actually a real planet. There's some instrumental problems there, there's some false positives, which weren't adequately corrected before. And they found that, that, that performing these better corrections actually halved the occurrence rates of planets. So using a bin of around 20% of Earth's radius and period, um, they actually went from 4% of stars having Earths to only 2%. So that's slightly depressing. Um, it's quite wow. brutal. Yeah. But on the other side of the coin, there was an, another occurrence rate uh, paper out this month from uh, Miko Tuomi et al. So I, I want you to guess how many pages it was, you guys. He writes long papers, doesn't yeah. he? He's, he's, he's known for it. Uh, 50? Okay. Hannah? I was going with 45. Okay, it's 341 page paper. No! So it's, it is the longest paper I have ever seen. There's a lot of tables because... That's ridiculous. What they did was they looked at the RV data for 426 of the closest end dwarfs. To get trying to get a handle of how many planets M dwarf stars might host, including habitable zones, sort of Earth-like planets, which is where the radial velocity ability to detect planets is kind of getting down to now. Um, so, unlike the downgrading of Eta Earth from Bryson, they suggested that every M dwarf is orbited by between one and seven planets, with a median of about 2.4. And this was almost exactly the same as the number that Kepler produced from, in a paper by Dressing and Charbonneau a few years ago, which was about 2.5, although that's a different parameter range. So combining the two, you get something like three planets uh, per M-dwarf. And along the way, they found 108 candidate planets. 15 of those were inside the habitable zone. And actually, if, when they computed it, they got an eta Earth for habitable uh, one to six Earth mass planets of 0.5. So every other M-dwarf according to this paper, should have a, a planet in the habitable zone that's that's a, 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 an Earth or a super-Earth. Yeah, 6 me is quite big. It's It should, I mean, in terms of radius, you're talking about 1.4, so yeah. it's, 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 it's reasonable, I think. Um, and actually half of, of those new candidates were new detections as well. And these included two planets around GJ406, which would be the third closest exoplanet to Earth at, a, at less than eight light years, so behind Barnard Star and Alpha Sen. Um, 
staying with M-Dwarfs and nearby ones at that, we have to talk about Tea Garden Star. So uh, one thing to talk about is why Tea Garden Star gets this cool name rather than HD, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so one of the reasons is that most of the stars that we talk about on the show usually are initially found in these big star catalogues that were performed a century ago, like HD and GJ and things like that. And so they pick up a number according to where in the catalogue they are. This star, though, because it's faint and it was fast moving, was detected and published in a single paper by Tea Garden in 2003, impressively recently. So um, Matthias Zeckmeister and the Karmanis team have been taking uh, RVs of this planet for three years and, uh, and assembled about 200, and they spotted two sinusoidal signals in the data which corresponded to Earth-sized planets on orbits of 5 and 11 days. Well, even though that's very close to the star, the star is so tiny, so um, you know it's less than 3,000 Kelvin, so it's um, half the temperature of... Of, a, of our sun, for example. Um, those orbits are the in, inner edge and the outer edge of the habitable zone. Uh, although there is room, maybe, to put another planet in the middle, which maybe is uh, so far undetected, but we'll have to see with more velocities if that's the case. Uh, unfortunately, this system doesn't transit, so they were able to rule out transits in the system. Um, so only RVs or, I guess, astrometry might find these planets. Uh, in interestingly enough, the star is actually going to move into a position because it's moving so fast, where it'll be able to spot the transits of solar system bodies, so of planets like the Earth, if aliens on the surface happen to be looking this way with a, with a telescope. Although the motion of the star means that they only have 452 transits of Earth before it moves out of that zone, that shadow that the Earth casts out into, into our galaxy, and uh, it no longer will be able to spot um, our planet, which is pretty cool. That seems like a lot of orbits. Yeah, you could probably get a lot of good data with that. The, I imagine the average star, will, yeah, you get a lot of good data, but the average star would probably be in that zone for millions of years, so, um, or tens of thousands anyway. So, uh, moving on, there were uh, a handful of test planets. So, LTT1445b was discovered this month, and that is a terrestrial-sized transiting planet detected by TESS in a system of three M-dwarfs. So, the paper is poetically titled Three Red Suns in the Sky, because... In a in, well, I guess not every night, not every day, but in in a in a lucky occurrence, you would see three red M dwarf stars in the sky of this planet, um, and it's also the most spectroscopic spectroscopically accessible terrestrial exoplanet currently known. Which means that um, if there is an atmospheric signal to be found there, it is strongest on this planet than on any other Earth-like or super-Earth planet in the sky. So I can't really wait to to see what James Webb spots in the atmosphere of this planet in a few years' time. Uh, staying with TESS, Elizabeth Newton et al. found a seven Earth-radius Earth planets, which is kind of between Neptune and Saturn in, in size, around the young star DS Tuck A. Um, there were two planets around LP79118, which was published by Ian Crossfield, and these have radii of 1.1 and 2.3 times that of Earth, so, so TESS is really starting to find these really small planets, which is exactly what it's built to do, which is cool. It's also finding large planets, so there are a couple of uh, hot Jupiters, or four hot Jupiters that were detected and published this month from test data, although two of them were initially already known for ground-based data, so HAT 69 and 70. And interestingly, that paper also publishes an occurrence rate for hot Jupiters based on the test data, suggesting that actually um, 
Hot Jupiters are twice as common around G dwarfs, so stars like our Sun, than they are around A-type stars, so these big hot blue stars. Um, something like 0.7% of G stars have hot Jupiters, compared to 0.3 for A stars. So that's one of the first cool uh, occurrence rates we're getting from TESS. Um, and with all these new planetary discoveries, this month the NASA Exoplanet Archive hit the big 4,000. So now we have 4,009 exoplanets in that archive, which is uh, was a big kind of momentous um, breakthrough. You know, we, we And I found it interesting uh, on, on Twitter, actually, Eric Marmajek predicted Marmajek of Marmajek's law, which correlates to the uh, doubling of exoplanetary numbers of planets. And he predicted that by 2022, so only three years away, we'd have 10,000 planets. And by 2031, we'd have 100,000. So uh, so there's plenty more wow. um, anniversaries to, to be celebrated by the Exoplanet Archive. And soon we'll we'll probably stop celebrating every thousand because it'll be, you know, every every few weeks. But I'm looking forward to, to the, when that happens anyway. And that's all I have for the news this month. All right, well, thanks so much for joining us for another installment of Exocast. We're going to return next month with some more interesting exoplanetary news and views, and I'm going to be joined by another special guest. Uh, until then, check out all our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast, and like us on Facebook. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Exocast.